Employee retention is a hot topic for many agencies. Agencies have made positive steps toward keeping people, but there are a few things they could still do. Financial coach and retired federal manager Abe Grungold joins me now with what those might be. And Abe, as a recent retiree, you went to the full extent of a federal career a couple of years ago. But uh, that idea of retention, they are talking about this. This is huge for OPM and for the agencies themselves. What do you think they're doing well? Let's start there. Tom, thank you for having me on the show today. And yes, the government has done some good things in the area of employee retention, but they seem to only focus on certain employee classifications, such as parity pay for the uh, Office of Controller employees and parity pay for the Securities and Exchange Commission employees, because these employees have certain skills that they have learned in their agency, and they tend to be recruited away to the private sector. So these agencies have instituted parity pay to keep them. And another employee group, the TSAs, employees who are going to be getting an increase in salary. Yes, and uh, I don't know what the types of commensurate jobs might exist outside of government for transportation security officers, although they do have a lot of psychological skill and observational skills, so it may not be directly comparable, but I think they have skills that are definitely usable. But for Office of the Comptroller and the SEC, I mean, there are countless jobs across the government, everybody at Veterans Affairs, nurses, doctors, medical practitioners of all sorts, schedulers, whose skills are in demand externally. So it seems like a pretty limited group for parity pay. Yes. Well, also in the VA, some of the nurses have been getting increase in salaries as well as they're trying to give physicians an increase in salary. But just going back to TSA, the TSA employees, there has been about 20% in turnover rate because TSA employees earn a beginning salary of forty to fifty thousand dollars, and in those cities like San Francisco and New York, a TSA employee just can't live on that low salary. So there is a high turnover in certain airports across the country. Yes, in fact, I think one of the other benefits they have received in recent years is more regularity in their shifts. So if they want to work a second job. I think early on, the agency considered it a security concern if they didn't move people around so they didn't have predictable shifts, which could mean predictable encounters with the same travelers over and over. I think that's what the theory was. But, you know, if you don't know what your shifts are going to be in a given week, it's pretty hard to plan that side job to augment your income. Yes. Also regarding hours during the work week, many agencies have instituted the 410 schedule and the 549 schedule, where it gives them a day or two days off every pay period. That was a benefit that I really enjoyed as a federal employee. And in my last five years with the government, I was teleworking with my agency. Now, due to the pandemic, the government was trying to put a telework policy in every agency that they could for those employees who could work telework. Obviously, you can't have postal carriers 
teleworking or VA nurses or VA doctors, they have to be in the hospital and post employees have to deliver the mail. But as the pandemic ended, a lot of employees did not want to return to work. So it was good that the government has tried to salvage this telework policy, but they still could do better with certain areas with respect to benefits. Sure. And we'll get to that in a moment. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a financial coach and retired federal manager. And before we get to that, I was going to say that that idea of four by 10, you know, the four day work week, but 10 hours. So the employer, the government is still getting its 40 hours. That is very popular. And you're starting to hear the four-day work week creep out into state level and even in some industries. The ramifications are complicated, and you can see where it could help and hurt different areas like customer service. But it seems to be gaining ground. Yes. I worked long double shifts and 24-hour shifts when I worked in the private sector in a hospital. So when I came into the government, and they brought out the, they called it flexible schedule. They brought that out in the 90s. And that was a very attractive benefit for every employee, including managers. You get one day off or two days off every pay period. It's 26 to 52 extra days off a year. So it's a wonderful benefit for employees. Sure. And I would just say, uh, as a young reporter, I work something called a split shift. (laughs) I don't think anyone would ever recommend that. That's only for the very young and naive. Let's put it that way. All right. So what are some things you think the government could do on the benefits side, as you mentioned, to enhance that idea of retention? Well, the key to retaining employees is the government needs to educate every federal employee about their benefits to show them that their benefits are more valuable than if you were to go out in the private sector. My top three benefits that I'd like to discuss, one is the federal health benefits, FEHB. The second is the Fegley life insurance benefit. And the third is the thrift savings plan, the TSP. That is the most important benefit of all, and that's why I was saving that for last. Well, I would say that the defined pension benefit, which FERS employees still have, in addition to the TSP, is something that's tremendous, even though it's not as big as the old civil service retirement system pension of years ago. Most of those people are sort of passing out of the uh, of the phase here. But besides the TSP, the defined benefit pension, that's pretty darn good, too. Well, the reason I didn't mention the FERS annuity is you still have to put in a considerable number of years in order to obtain that. Uh But if you start saving in your TSP early on, you're going to immediately see the immediate positive things of that benefit, which is the thrift savings plan. First of all, the health benefits. The government offers different plans where in the private sector, you may get only a few choices. Now, the government is also paying the lion's share of the premium. So even when a federal employee, when they are able to retire, they would only pay the same premium as if they were still working. But the thing that the government needs to educate employees on is that they need to understand the mechanics of their plan. They need to understand what benefits are provided. 
co-payments, co-insurance, out-of-pocket, out-of-pocket catastrophic loss. They need to understand every aspect of their health plan because they only seem to know it when they get ill or something occurs in their life. So it's a very important benefit. The uh, other very important benefit that the government provides its employees and they need to educate them on is the life insurance. Because in the private sector, employees usually have to fill out a questionnaire. They have to take a physical. They need to do some laboratory or medical testing. But in the government, they don't have to do that. They're automatically eligible and enrolled in the Fegley life insurance policy. And this is a wonderful benefit because you are able to protect your beneficiaries from any debt in the event something happens to you. And the other thing to consider, too, just going back to the FEHB for a moment, is that those choices are available to you in retirement. And your corporate plan no longer is once you retire. Yes. Every federal employee, whether they're active or a retiree, during open season, they can change their health plan. So they're able to see the difference from one plan to another. They're able to see all the premiums, and they can make a very wise choice in those circumstances. And just a word about the TSP, because the current travails of the website, and by the way, just in recent days, they have been able to fix some of the functions that people were complaining about, but that's a short-term issue. We presume over the long term, the TSP functionally, like any other IRA, What, in your opinion, makes the TSP attractive relative to what other plans are available for IRAs? Well, the real key point to the TSP is it's not exactly an IRA. It's a 401k plan. And you are allowed to put in to the maximum of what the IRS allows. But the government is giving you a 5% match. That is the most critical part of the TSP because in the private sector, yes, there are companies that have 401k plans, but they are not providing any type of match because they can't afford to do it. So in the government, in the entire history of the TSP, and I've been a participant for 35 years, I've always received that 5% match. It's never changed. And that is a 5% raise for every employee, and they must take advantage of that. And the government needs to educate employees about this because I have clients who do not contribute 5% in order to get the 5% matching. Yeah, and I think that's really an important point to be made, especially to people early in their careers, because they're looking at the debates going around Social Security and the predictions for Social Security insolvency. Lord knows what the fix, if any, will be for all of that. So I think increasingly young people maybe are getting the idea, I better pack my own parachute here. Yeah, the employees really have the responsibility to learn their benefits. But if the government wants to try to retain these employees, they need to educate them on how important their benefits are, especially the TSP. Because as a TSP member, if you put in a 20 to 30 year career, 
you have the potential of being a TSP billionaire. And that is very important, very important. Right. It's actually not that difficult to get to that level over time if you're consistent and take that 5% match. It is not difficult. And really, if you are investing aggressively with your TSP, you can become a TSP billionaire if you make the 5% contribution, receive the 5% match, invest aggressively, and at the end of 30 years, there's a very likely chance you're going to be a TSP billionaire. It all depends on the market, too, but it's a very good chance. Abe Grungold is a financial coach and retired federal manager. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Tom. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.